Anyway, if you have your Bibles, please join me in Hebrews 5, chapter, uh, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. Would remind everybody, please turn off all your cell phones like I didn't do a couple of months ago. So we've been looking at uh, selective verses in Hebrews. We learned that uh, in 4, 1, uh, 4, 11 to 13, we learned that we find our rest in Christ. Context really does make a difference because the writer of Hebrews is talking to Jews who were still clinging to the law. Some of them had trusted in Christ. Some had not. And the way that you find your rest is you find it in Christ. And you don't continue to try to work for your salvation. Christ already finished that work on the cross. And then we talked about growing beyond the ABCs and reaching for perfection. We also looked in uh, chapter 1 that God used to speak through the uh, prophets of the Old Testament, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in Christ. And then in 2, 1 through 4, chapter 2, 1 through 4, we looked at pay attention to the gospel and warning the Jews that were reading this that Christ is the Messiah and you need to pay attention to that. And last week we talked about uh, in chapter 3 verses 12 through 15, check your heart and partner with Christ. Now let's, <laughs> when I chose this text, um, I chose it because it's a very difficult text um, in many ways. But what we see here that the author is writing is we are looking at the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. We often say, well, we know Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. But how does that actually play out? And I think this is probably one of the best verses to short circuit our mindset. It, it's kind of like if, if you focus on eternity and you say it never ends, it never ends, it, it, your mind can't comprehend it. Well, there's some stuff in here today that's uh, kind of mind-boggling, and, and I spent a little bit of time here uh, looking at these verses, but my goodness, there's a lot here. So the bad news is there's a lot here and we have a lot to get through. So what that means is... I hope you don't have an 11 o'clock something. No, I'm kidding. I'll try to get it done in time. Anyway, we're looking at Jesus, his humanity. And part of his humanity is understanding those who are saved. We know that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We've established that. And, but there is, there's an area which kind of will short circuit how we view Christ. And I'll make... I'm just going to dive in and, and hit the areas that uh, you may not have thought about or may not have tried to struggle with. Uh, and in the end, this is like trying to nail jelly to a wall. It's, it's very difficult to comprehend. Um, and not one scholar that I read uh, actually was able to identify what I think is uh, a very difficult subject. So anyway, let's look. First of all, Jesus suffered and notice the cries and tears. In these last, or not in these last days, in the days of his flesh, that's a period of time and sarks is the human body. So 
immediately we're confronted with the fact that Jesus was a physical being. As such, the human body, he would have had all the dynamics of the human body that we have. He would have had a brain, he would have a voice box, he would have had lungs, he would have had all of these elements that encompass what it means to be human. So, the very first thing that he says is, in the days of his flesh. And when we think about Jesus being flesh, uh, one scripture that comes to mind is uh, John chapter 1, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and that word uh, dwelt really refers to tabernacled, uh, much like a tent that, that Jesus, the, he was referencing here that Jesus had an earthly body, but uh, Paul uses it in the sense of tabernacled. Uh, among us and we beheld his glory glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth so it's not just the writer of hebrews that is acknowledging that jesus was real one thing that the jews who have even to this day they refuse to believe that jesus was the messiah part of it uh, they they are still waiting for the promised messiah but the writer here is attacking the issue of jesus being fully human in every way. In the days of his flesh, uh, there's uh, uh, also, if, I don't know if you can, you probably can't go there, but there was a thing called Gnosticism, which came later, not, not too much later, uh, in, in, which, in which in the New Testament, when it was established, that Jesus didn't really have a body, that it was only a mirage, that he looked like he had a body, but he didn't. John writes it this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So John is attacking that Gnosticism. It says, look, we've seen Jesus, we've heard Jesus, and we touched Jesus. He was real. End of discussion. And, uh, and that was an attack on Gnosticism. So Jesus now offered up prayers and supplication. These two words are very closely related. The first deals with uh, an urgent plea, and the second is an even more urgent plea. So what we have here is, uh, it almost sounds like somebody that is in a spot of desperation. David Allen, in his commentary, rightfully adds, the most difficult passages exegetically and theologically in this section is Hebrews 5, 7 through 8. I would also say 9 and 10 are equally uh, uh, difficult. The NIV translation, Life on Earth, accurately renders uh, the sense literally in the days of his flesh. The two nouns, prayer and petition, are essentially synonymous. Although the second word is stronger than the first, the combination adds urgency in the plea. So this is a situation in which, in the days of Jesus' earthly life, there was a moment of intense prayer to God, which seemed to indicate some type of struggle. And so when we think about what could this be that the writer is talking about, what is the writer talking about when he talks about these urgent prayers. There's, there's really only two options. I like the second option better, but one option is when Jesus was on the cross. 
in which he was dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, Christ was literally taking on the sins of the world. And for the first time in all eternity, Christ was separated from the Father, taking on the full wrath of God's judgment on your behalf and mine. The most logical uh, answer to this, since Jesus it talks about suffering, which he'll talk about death too. So it, the most logical explanation was when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he told the disciples to wait, and he went and prayed. And it was a very intense moment. I don't know if you guys remember Ray Vanderland's reaccounting re of that event. Very powerful that, that Jesus, Lord, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And that would certainly qualify for this intensity of the days of the flesh in Jesus when he is struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the next phrase, which I think supports this, this view, because in saying, is there any way that you can let this cut pass from me that, that I'm not going to have to endure this? The very next phrase comes along. Uh, well, let me look at uh, loud cries and tears. Uh, it showed there that Jesus actually was understanding what it meant to cry and to have tears. And so you get this idea of, of, of intensity. Now the next phrase, to him who is able to save him from death. To him who is able to save him from death. This is definitely a reference to the coming days when Jesus Christ would go to the cross, he would be crucified. Here you have the image of a Savior, fully God, never losing his divinity, yet in his humanity is struggling. And guess what? That's how we know that Jesus knows us. When we go through struggles in our lives and we go through hardships in our lives, he knows this. He knows us because he lived it himself. Now, John MacArthur in, in his commentary rightly adds, Jesus was not asking to be saved from dying, but to be saved out of death. That is, to be saved from remaining dead. He was not asking to avoid the cross, but to be assured of the resurrection. Uh, Jesus said in his life, I lay down my life. I do that willingly. No man takes it from me. So there is this, within this context, I believe the author here is referencing just a few days before the crucifixion of Christ. We oftentimes think that we're above all of suffering and hardship, but we're not. We go through hard stuff in life. We go through difficult stuff in life. We get banged up, we get beat up, and isn't it wonderful to know that we have a Savior that experienced it, that understands what it means when you say, God, where are you? He knows he's been there. Even though he was fully God, 
He was fully man in all aspects, in all dimensions. God didn't say, okay, I'm going to let you, Jesus, go down there. You're not going to experience any suffering. You're my son, and I'm just going to protect you all the way through. No. When Jesus came to this earth, he came by way of vaginal birth. He came out. He, and I, I'm getting ahead of myself. But the fact is, he knew, and he knows, every difficulty and hardship that you have. That's the kind of Savior I want to worship. Somebody that's been where I am, and, and, and actually to a much greater scale than I could ever imagine. And, and, and so we sing hymns. He walks with me. He talks with me. Of course he does. He's our Savior, and he knows, he knows us. He knows you. And the writer of... Hebrews adds, he was heard because of his reverence. Okay. This word, eulabia, eulabia, means this. Reverent submission. The reverence that Jesus had was the worship of the Father. And of course, when you worship the Father... He will hear. Again, the paradigm for us that's been set by Jesus is that we should live our lives in reverence of God and of Christ and to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. All right. Let's look at obedience. <clears throat> you ready to get into the, to the mire for just a minute? Now notice what he writes in verse 8. Although he was a son, or the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Let's, let's read that again. Although he was a son, the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. Wait a minute. Jesus is the Son of God. How can Jesus learn obedience? He invented obedience. How did he learn obedience? And this is where take jelly and start nailing it to a wall, and it's just difficult to understand. But he notice, he, he says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. The son was his relationship to the father. He learned, manfano, to be taught or given instructions. And then, of course, hupako is the word for obedience, which means to obey on the basis of paying attention. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus had to understand on this side of the fence what human obedience looks like. And he learned that through suffering so that when we receive Christ and we go through this life and we suffer, we can look back at what Jesus did and respond the same way that Jesus did. Now, I know that sounds heretical, but at some point we have to acknowledge that Jesus was human. Otherwise, we are not worshiping the God-man. 
Now, did Jesus sin? Absolutely not. But we have to acknowledge something. Luke says it this way. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all people. Uh, Jesus grew. He went through all the aspects of human life as he grew. He grew as a boy. He skinned his knee. He cried. He did all the things that normal children do. But yet, Jesus was growing, fully aware of his divinity, was growing just like a normal boy would go through. Now, can you imagine Joseph... family of Joseph, well, Jesus did it, and Jesus goes, no, I didn't do it, and Joseph goes, I believe Jesus, <laughs> because he's the son of God, he knew. But you have this dimension here where Jesus is actually learning from the human perspective so that he can identify with us. Did, did you know that when somebody saved, even the angels are curious about the salvation that is offered? Mark 13, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. That's another one that's difficult. How could Jesus Christ not know that day? Well, that's secured with the Father. And I think it's, it's good to wrestle with these difficulties. What about John 6, 64? But there are some of you, Jesus, so on one end, there's one day that Jesus doesn't know about, but there are some of you, Jesus talking, for Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe and who it was that would betray him. And there were things that Jesus knew ahead of time. When, when they're at the Lord's Supper, he told Judas, go do what you must do. Jesus knew ahead of time. He knew that. We're not stripping Jesus of his divinity. And we're not going to strip him of his humanity. And therefore, trying to put these two together is very, very difficult. It, it, it's difficult because we, we go, well, how, how would Jesus learn obedience? He invented it. How would he have to learn that? He had to learn it as a human so that we, he would know our struggles. And it's difficult. Philippians 2, 5, and 8. Your attitude should be the same of Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That means held on to. So you get this idea. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. When people get to the end of their lives, Jesus knows because he's been there. When you get all these things thrown at you, Jesus knows. It's through suffering. It is through suffering that we come to know the complexity of the Savior. 
It is through the hardships and trials of life in which we can begin to get a glimpse of what the life of Jesus was like here on the earth. Well, my suffering on this end, my suffering is nothing compared to what Christ went through. And therefore, we can look to Christ as a model to follow. Have you ever had those moments where you just cry out to God? Maybe you're laying in bed and you just can't sleep and you toss and turn. Jesus knows. Because he experienced exactly what you and I experience. Notice the humanity that comes through in both of these verses. He prayed. That means he had a mind to be able to communicate to God. He also had a voice to be able to communicate it because he cried out loud. He experienced emotion. He experienced human suffering. And in all of this was yet obedient to God. Thomas Lay, in his commentary after these two verses, he just says it straight, and I think it's a really good, a really good quote. We should probably recognize that a divine mystery is involved in Jesus learning obedience. <laughs> it is difficult to understand why the divine son would need to learn. And I think he had to learn it because he had to identify with the ones who would follow him. We cannot fully comprehend the incarnate Son of God acquired knowledge through suffering that allowed him to learn the value of obedience. So if you go back and you read this, uh, you go back and you read this scripture, you'll, you'll see exactly the dynamics that are, that are at work. Okay. And he is the Savior and is the Savior. And being made perfect, that's another uh, teleo, which uh, can be a form of teleos, which is different. But uh, teleo means to attain a state or a goal. Ultimately, the word means fulfillment. Paul uses the, the word in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word there is teleos. Here you have um, teleo. But the, so, those two words basically come from the same, which means fulfillment or completion. So when he writes here, and being made perfect suggests the idea of being complete being whole. Now the question is, how was he made perfect? Well, let's do a little Old Testament uh, information here. Malachi 4.4 says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded you in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Think of it this way. Everything that God spoke, Jesus and, and, and was written, Jesus had to fulfill that perfectly. It's, it's, it's like navigating the complexities of God. Now, just by way of quick remembrance, 
um, the law was the law had three categories or three aspects there was the moral law there was the civil law and there was the ceremonial the basis of these laws were God's righteous nature God's just nature and God's holiness so the purpose of the moral law was to promote welfare of God's people and it addresses the unrighteousness which is caused by sin in the heart and then of course it shapes the conduct well everything in the law was geared particularly in the moral aspect to live with our brothers and sisters when we come to the New Testament love your neighbor when we come to the New Testament brothers help each other get along uh, work together to accomplish the mission of God those moral laws are still in place uh, then then we come to the civil law God's just nature governs between God and his people and boy oh boy oh boy did the nation of Israel do this one time they're praising God the next day they're building stuff to Baal or rebelling how they interact with community and each other and their deeds and their interaction and behaviors and with others so that was the civil law but then there's a ceremonial law which dealt with God's holiness I am going somewhere with this enables God's people to come before him when they obey his statues posture before God and identity it shapes our identity so when you talk about the ceremonial law you're talking about the priesthood which he'll get into in just a minute uh, so when we talk about Jesus was complete he fulfilled all those 700 plus laws in the Old Testament he did it perfectly so that wait for it so that when you trust in Christ he imputes his righteousness into us and therefore we have reached completion and therefore are clean before the Father based on not what I do but by based by what Jesus did and there's a there's the whole thing right there that Jesus lived the law perfectly because we could not and guess what he did that as a man just like me and you nobody in this room can possibly live every law that God spoke in, in fact you're probably gonna break 10 of them this week I, I don't know I'm just guessing but Jesus lived those laws so that you are complete in Christ and because of this <clears throat> because of this we also in Christ are made perfect Thomas Lay and I like this too Jesus was obedient to God's will in that he endured suffering and death in doing this Jesus brought the redemptive purpose to their fulfillment or completion by enduring suffering Jesus obtained the goal the father had for him this enabled him to become a perfectly equipped high priest you have to remember the Jews <clears throat> had this system where the high priest would offer sacrifices and what the writer is saying here is you don't need to look for anybody else Jesus has already done it he's already fulfilled everything and when Jesus died on the cross that day the veil of the temple was written to signifying that now we have access to God through Christ and him alone 
Now I know a lot of this, some of this is rehash and a lot of you would already know this. And he became the source of eternal life in 5.9. He became the source of eternal life. One uh, scripture that I'd like you guys to just quickly jot down is, is, is this. John 10, 28 and 29. And Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And I and the father are one. When you trust in Christ, and it's a heart issue. When you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in his hand and you cannot get out. He is greater than all. And, and it, it really is a heart issue. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a, I'm going to do this and look like I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. There is a conversion that takes place. When that conversion takes place and you trust in Christ and his finished work, his righteousness comes down in the presence of the Holy Spirit and is put inside your heart and you become a child of God. And at that point, you're his. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor principalities nor things past nor things present shall ever separate me from the love of Christ. That's Paul in Romans chapter 8. Beautiful verse. So let me say this. When you trust in Christ, you're saved. Now, you're going to struggle. You're going you're to have to learn stuff. And you're, some, days, some days you're going to look like the model Christian. And some days, maybe not so much. But you know what? You never have to worry about your position with God because he's already done it. He did all the work. I'm not trusting in anything that I did. I'm trusting in the finished work of Christ. And he knows me. He knows my heart. He knows me. He knows you. He knows your heart. And we trust in that, and we hang to that, and we cling to that. Notice what he writes right after this. So he's been talking about Jesus' obedience. Look at what he says. He became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. You're eternally secure, but guess what? We are called to follow Christ. And he's already set the model for us. We don't have to invent a new way to be obedient to God. We have the scripture. We have Jesus. Matter of fact, if you go back and you look at the gospels and see how Jesus lived, just live like that. Follow his way. Follow his method. How he did things. You know, Jesus stretched the religious elite. He did stuff that stretched them. He's eating with a tax collector. The old Zacchaeus. I always think of him as a little guy in the tree. Right? <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> what should this include? And these are my own thoughts. Accepting the gospel message and trusting in Christ. That's part of obe oh, being obedient. Obediently following Christ with our lives. <clears throat> it means that to the best of our ability with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that we seek to become more like Jesus 
and less like the world. And that's a lifelong process. Nobody has ever reached that until the day that you pass and you see the face of the Savior who redeemed you. That's when you become complete. I don't like this flesh. This flesh is tough. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. How many of you love suffering? Oh, Joyce? Joyce? <laughs> See me after church. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Luke 23. <clears throat> Luke 9, 23. Then he said to all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily. I was under the delusion as a young believer when I trusted in Christ that things would be marvelous. They weren't. <clears throat> I found out that it's harder to be a Christian than it is to be lost. And boy, did I find out. Throughout my early military career, I found out. All because I was a Christian. And I was like, I thought things were to get better. Well, they do get better as far as heaven goes. But look, anytime you call on the name of Jesus, get ready. Get, get ready. <clears throat> Quick example, I hope, hope I can say this. Holly put a, uh, on Facebook, she, she put the American Heritage Girls uh, on Facebook and promoted it, thinking that we would get nice responses. We did not. I even texted Holly and said, hey, you got some negative responses here. People don't like the truth. Anything of God, they will react. You're, a, you're this, you're that, you're that. You know, it's amazing that they claim to be accepting, except when it comes to what you and I believe as believers. Then it's appalling, and we're going to attack it. So I think we had to block all the responses. Negative responses to American Heritage Girls. Wow. If you don't want to come, don't come. But the thing is, it represents Christ. And that's where the problem is. Quite amazing. We're going to suffer. So we need to remember that. And, but the good news here is, the good news is that when we suffer and we hurt and we struggle, we have a Savior who can identify with us. You know that? Jesus, I say this again, Jesus knows every struggle that you go through. He knows every hardship, every trial. He knows it. Why? Because he lived it as a full man. And we can trust that. And we can just say, Lord, you know my heart. You know where I am. Father, help me in my weakness. Help me. Give me strength. Give me courage. Jesus knows. And I think part of this is say, Lord, this is a tough one to do. I will admit it. It's tough to say, Lord, not my will but yours be done. 
Jesus said the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, Father. That's a good model to follow. Particularly if you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, you're not getting an answer. Sometimes you just got to let it go. Not all the time, mind you. My, grand, my two grandmothers, they, they prayed for my salvation all the way up. Sometimes you keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. The last thing we want to look at is Melchizedek. Now, after Jesus had suffered, he was victorious over the cross. He was appointed then the high priest, being designated by God, and uh, priests were the Levitical priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I looked up Melchizedek um, because he's mentioned five times in Hebrews, uh, but I kind of went back and did a little study and Melchizedek, his name means my king is righteousness, which is interesting. Um, this, the reference here is to Genesis 14, 18 to 20. And this is when Abram, not Abraham yet, Abram comes back from victorious uh, victories over his enemies, and he comes and he stands before Melchizedek, who my king is righteousness. And in 418, I'm just going to read to you, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the most high God. So think about this. Melchizedek was before Abraham which is in some way an image of Christ. And now, and of course Abraham in G Genesis chapter 12 goes on to leave his country and God makes him the father of many nations. But right now he is standing before Melchizedek, king of Salem, and the king of Salem said to him, blessed be Abraham by most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And Melchizedek then blessed Abram, not Abraham yet, blessed Abram, who he delivered, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. So when we look at, for example, Romans, when Paul uses Abraham, this predates Abraham. And it also establishes Melchizedek as a leading or as a prototype of Christ that will bless. And so he says, I'm making him after the order of Melchizedek who came before, Abra or came before Abraham. At that time, his name was Abram. And so you have here Christ is, is used a lot. Uh, when Moses goes to the mountain, God says, you can't go into the promised land, and he raises up Joshua. My God is salvation. was a prototype of Jesus Christ, who was raised up and leads us into the promised land of heaven. Melchizedek comes from the same line. You could say that Melchizedek is uh, similar to, to Jesus Christ in the New Testament.
And so he says, I'm being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which, by the way, is one of the most supreme priests in the Old Testament. Jewish people, Jewish people, Jesus is the great high priest. And they've missed it. So what did we learn? Obviously, the first thing Jesus knows our struggles. He knows you. He knows me. Jesus was obedient to the Father in every aspect. And yet, within this context, Jesus experienced what it was like to live the human life in the world. Try to put that together. I think I got some of it to fit, but probably not all. And there's probably stuff when I get to heaven. Well, you were right here, but not quite there. Just see that. Jesus calls his followers to be obedient to him and his mission in the world. But I personally, my own takeaway from this is, thank God I have a Savior who knows my struggles and that I can talk to. And he's sympathetic to me.